Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Beijing Winter Olympics are still underway, scheduled to wrap up this Sunday after an eventful more than two weeks featuring a few of Connecticut's very own. Coming up, where we live, we talk to Connecticut Public's Frankie Graziano about the local Olympians. First, one of the most interesting Connecticut connections is happening behind the scenes. Whether a heartwarming win or a harrowing defeat, the highs and lows of the games have been fed through Stamford, Connecticut at the NBC Sports International Broadcast Center. It's a 300,000 square foot complex. It's been air traffic control for hundreds of international feeds and home for more than 1,500 commentators, producers, and technical staffers. Joining us now with more on Zoom is Lee Diffie, an NBC sports broadcaster and play-by-play commentator for the Beijing Winter Olympics. Lee, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me on. And you're also a Connecticut resident, so we appreciate uh, talking with you with that Connecticut connection. So give us a sense of what this complex or campus in Stanford is like when we think about all the people off-site working uh, to bring the games uh, to viewers. Well, it's one of the most remarkable places you could see. It was uh, once upon a time a Clairol shampoo factory. Now it's turned into a state-of-the-art uh, television network headquarters, which is just, uh, it's a fantastic place to be. It's a fantastic place to work. I've been there for 10 years, uh, right from when the building first opened. And uh, it's amazing, but it's even more amazing to see everybody there. Um, for me, it's not a n- unique way to do it. Uh, being remote, we used to do Formula One this way for the majority of the Formula One series. Um, so it's kind of second nature to me to do it this way it's not as it's not as ideal as being on site you know as a broadcaster um, and a storyteller we all want to be closer to the athletes etc but circumstances dictate that it's done this way and it's um it's working out fantastically well i have to say so give us an idea of what it's like to call a sport uh, from Stanford. It's unfolding millisecond by millisecond from China. You said that you're used to this from your work with Formula One but give us a glimpse uh, for our listeners well, you go. We, we work inside a we work inside a booth. So more than likely, you're talking to me from some kind of a studio or a, or a voiceover slash commentary booth, um, and we work inside one of those within a studio. So um, across the hallway from me, there are people doing big air. There are people doing the hockey. There are people doing downhill. Uh, it, it's it's a variety. Like we're all. Um, uh, inside this one big sound stage, if you wish, inside a big studio, inside these portable uh, soundproof commentary booths. So it's like little rabbit warrens, uh, but they, they do such a fantastic job. They facilitate us so well. Um, and then what what's incumbent upon uh, myself and my colleagues, the, the expert analysts, John Morgan, Bree Scharf and Aaron Hamlin, is to be be better storytellers because we're not there. So to kind of embellish and enhance the story in, in a better way, uh, maybe even more so than when we're there, you know. Um, and it's, 
it sounds more difficult from a conceptual stage but one or a standpoint but once you're actually in the mode lucy you you really are transformed as though that you're there you know like we we feel like we're there we're in the moment uh we're calling the races uh we're, we're, we're part of it and so I think what the NBC Sports Group has done really well is to facilitate this. Uh, it's a huge undertaking, massive undertaking, and the engineering staff and, and all of the logistics people and planning and the producers and everyone's done such a magnificent job to ha- have it happen in a safe way and, and, uh, and still not have the viewers lose out on any kind of experiential um, stuff. It's amazing, and I know that NBC commentator, also Olympic mogul skier, a gold medalist, uh, Hannah Carney, uh, told the NBC New York affiliate that when she goes to campus, it's like uh, the Stanford campus, it's like going back to high school, getting on the bus, cramming the night before to be prepared for all these uh, competitions. Uh, what do you think, Lee? Yeah, well, it is. It reminds me of university. You know, like you, you, you live for your lessons and to hang out with your buddies and to do your homework and that's what we do that's what we do um even though i live here in connecticut uh, i'm staying in a local hotel uh with like everybody else um and you go to work you do your job you might do some exercise work out have some have something to eat and then you're thinking about what is the next day do i have a do i have a single day and what i mean by that is just a morning session or a night session or do i have a double day which is both morning and night which is it's a heavy workload you've got to manage your sleep uh, get your homework done and then be ready that you're refreshed your mind feels good your body feels good um there's been a lot of caffeine ingested <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's working out well you're hearing Lee Diffie here on Where We Live, an NBC sports broadcaster and play-by-play commentator for the Beijing Winter Olympics. Uh, so many people watching uh, the Winter Olympics, but the fact that it's being broadcast, analysis, uh, all these competitions being called out of the Stanford NBC Sports International Broadcast Center, uh, it's really it, it, it's amazing to hear about all the work going behind the scenes that you described, Lee. At the top of the show, our listeners heard a little of your play-by-play of Sunday's monobot race earlier in the program so can you describe this new bobsled event well it's for women only Uh, it gives the female competitors an extra category to compete in Um, being just a single sled and a single athlete um, one of the driving forces behind the uh, concept and initiative was to perhaps invite nations in that would not have the resources or funding to do uh, a two-woman bobsled um it it has turned out fantastically well and you know the 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 sport of monobob has been around for years but on an olympic stage it was the first um it was typically used in junior uh um uh, format and then it's been around for now two years on the world cup level but sunday was unprecedented um on a global level because uh, the sport of bobsled, you know, is always thinking, like other sports, how do we get more interest? How do we get more eyeballs? How do we get more participants, etc.? Well, to follow Super Bowl 56, which was conveniently on NBC, and then for Mike Tirico to hand off to myself and Bree Sharf, you know, the, the numbers are now out. We had somewhere in excess of 24 million viewers uh, watching this. And it was huge for not only for us as a, as a sports network, but, but for the sport, you know, for, for, and for women's sport as well in particular. 
uh, it was very gratifying. It was really enjoyable and, and incredibly exciting when we, when we got that feedback as to the amount of viewers uh, who stuck around after the Super Bowl was, was finished and after the post-Super Bowl show was finished. So I think it shows that people are open-minded to, to new sports and different categories. And, and, and as consumers and viewers, we all want to be entertained. And it was highly entertaining and it was very convenient and really appropriate and exciting that we had two women win the gold and silver in the first ever um, Olympic monobob race. Tell us about those women, a big moment for Team USA. Let's start with Alana Myers-Taylor and her road to Beijing. Well, she is simply incredible. That's it. That's all you have to say. <laughs> she's an amazing athlete. She's an amazing human being. Um, she's a second-generation athlete. Her father was a, a standout football player. Um, who played for Navy. He was a running back for Navy. Uh, unfortunately, he never got to, to play in the NFL. He trained for many years with, with Falcons, with the Atlanta Falcons. But Alana has, you know, um, taken that gift, that athletic gift, and gone on with her career. And, you know, already before these games, a multi-time Olympic medalist, she had been denied the gold medal. But what she's done since the last game, since Pyeongchang, you know, she married her husband, married her, her boyfriend, Nick. They're now... Uh, husband and wife, and they've had a child. And young Nico um, is a special needs child. He has Down syndrome. And Alana is so driven, so determined, and so open and unbelievable. She's like, you know what? I uh, I could sit at home, and and you know, I, I this child needs all my attention and all my all my love and all my effort. And she's like, no, he's going to be part of my life, and we're going to be part of his, and we're going to do this as a family. So. You know, Nick and Nico and Alana go off and they do the World Cup season. Now, it's hard enough. You know, I work with Olympians all the time. It's hard enough to do a regular World Cup season by yourself. Then you take your husband and and your son along on the road and you still have to be selfish enough to do what you need to do to perform at your best. And then she goes and wins the World Cup this year. (laughs) And she is just incredible. Then you're going to Beijing and she gets on the ground in Beijing and tests positive for COVID-19. Mm. She doesn't know if she's going to be able to compete. Well, not only is her dad and, and her husband and her son there, well, then they have to quarantine as well. So she had not spent more than nine hours away from little Nico since he was born. And she was separated from him for more than 10 days. And she couldn't train the regular way she trained. And it was, I mean, the, the amount of stress, Lucy, that was put on this 37-year-old American was more than the average human could take. And she came through it to win a silver medal. And to me, she's superwoman. She is incredible. So there is no hurdle that is high enough for her to jump. And I just think that we should celebrate her athleticism and her will and her drive and her parenthood and her leadership. And uh, I just think she's amazing. And she's one of at least nine black women, most of them American, to medal in bobsled in, in the 20-year Olympic history, Lee? Yes, yep. And, and you know, I think for her, I mean, our parent company is Comcast. Comcast used her as a centerpiece of, of an advertising campaign throughout the, these uh, winter games uh, as an inspiration for, for young black uh, girls, uh, black uh, children, uh, either male or female. I mean, she's such an inspirational figure. It doesn't have to come down to, to, the, to the sex, you know, whether you're a, a little boy or a little girl. She is just um, an inspiration in every sense of the word. And for me, this has been my fifth Olympics, my third Winter Games. It's been just a joy for me to commentate on her because she's resilience personified. Uh, she has this wonderful 
um, just air about her. She she is terrific with the media. She's terrific with her competitors, uh, with her fans. And for, you know, you don't even have to be an athlete to aspire to be like Alana Myers-Taylor. She's just a terrific human being. And can you tell us more about the woman who uh, got the gold medal in the Mon and Bob event? Well, I, I imagine it must have been somewhat of an odd experience for Alana because Kaylee Humphreys, for many years, was her arch rival. And uh, then they end up being teammates. And uh, Kaylee ended up uh, racing for Team USA uh, in, in bobsled. Um, and Kaylee has won a, a gold medal a couple of times now, three uh, after this past weekend. Uh, she is Canadian-born and competed for Canada for many years. And there was a situation um, which I can't really expand on on a lot because there, there's some more uh, serious stuff going on, I, I understand. But she had an issue with the coaching staff of the Canadian team. And um, so she was in the position where she could um, uh, switch allegiances because she has a, an American husband. And so she went down the path, um, as have I. I'm, I've been a proud American for more than a decade now. Um, she was able to become a, a United States citizen and she got it just in the nick of time to be able to qualify um, for these Beijing 2022 games. And so um, having an athlete compete for multiple nations is is not anything new. You know, in the same race as, as she was, was a, uh, a young lady called Jasmine Fenlater Victorian who competed for Team USA, but she has uh, family heritage with Jamaica and she has competed at the last two games for Jamaica. I commentate track and field as well. You see it quite often in, in, in track and field. So being a, being a dual citizen and, and, and having competed at the Olympic Games, either summer or winter, is nothing new for two different nations. So, um, But it was, I imagine, I come back to that, it must have been weird for Alana to, to have Kaylee as, a, as an opponent and as a rival and then all of a sudden as a teammate. But as a, uh, as a team, they prevailed to win gold and silver, which was a fantastic story for Team USA. Yeah, coming up, I'm going to be speaking with Connecticut Public Radio's Frankie Graziano, who's our sports expert in the newsroom. He's a big fan of yours. And I just wanted to, to talk more about your versatility, Lee. Your sportscasting career started in motorsports. And you mentioned earlier, this is your fifth Olympics overall. Uh, you're also uh, working on track and field, rowing, bobsled, skeleton, luge, uh, calling uh, these uh, and providing analysis. Uh, tell us more about uh, your your switch from motorsports to Olympic sports? Well, uh, I've been very fortunate to have a, uh, an incredibly open-minded management team at, at NBC Sports that said, listen, you're a, you're, a, uh, you're a broadcaster, you're a race caller. So we have many properties that are races and it doesn't matter what a race is, you know, kind of a race is a race is a race and we love the way that you call races so we're going to throw different things at you. So when I joined NBC 10 years ago, um, they said, okay, we're going to put you on the Winter Games in Sochi in Russia and you're going to call bobsled, skeleton and luge. And being a kid from Australia at that time, I didn't have a big background in bobsled, skeleton <laughs> or luge. I do now. And um, I, I really appreciate their open-mindedness and, and their faith in me to say, uh, you know, go for it. And then, of course, track and field in Tokyo was a huge moment for me. Um, and it's been... I, I was talking to a fellow journalist um, uh, after the Tokyo Games and, you know, it was the first time he, his questioning made me think, you know, actually doing motorsport and going to other forms of Olympic sports has made me a better motorsport commentator and then being an Olympic commentator in different sports has made me better on my regular job, you know. So both of them go either way, you know, I've, I've become more well-rounded uh, due to the vision of my of my bosses at NBC Sports.
very mm. thankfully so. Can you talk a little bit more about the art of the play-by-play, Lee? Well, I think you've got to, um, you know, first of all, you have to be, I'm, I'm a, a little bit of a, 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 a hardcore homework person, right? I, I think I, I, I love my study and I love my homework through a very healthy fear of going on air and not being prepared. So I, <laughs> I pride myself on my homework. But then I tell younger colleagues and, and, and younger play-by-plays as well, at the end of the day, there's a race to be called. So we, we have to be storytellers and we have to give statistical and historical perspective and, and anecdotes. But at the end of the day too, there's a live sporting event, which is a live race, in my case, happening right in front of you. So at the end of the day, don't forget to call the race because the race is what we get excited about. Who's going to win? Who's second? Who's making a move from behind? You know, what, what are the dynamics of the race? So a lot goes into the, into the, into the mix, you know, in the pot, the ingredients in the mix of of um, being an effective play-by-play and making it entertaining for the viewers because, yes, it's sport. Secondly, it's entertainment, and you've got to blend the two and try and achieve that. And, you know, I don't think we ever stand back and say we nailed that. You know, there's never a perfect race call or there's never a perfect broadcast. We're always trying to be better. But if you keep all those uh, in the front of your mind and just try and excel in those um, areas, uh it's very gratifying. It's very rewarding. You know, you call an Olympic gold medal and particularly when it's for Team USA, uh, it, it, it feels pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we're speaking with Lee Diffie, who's an NBC sports broadcaster and doing play-by-play commentating for the out of uh, the Stanford uh, Broadcast Center for NBC uh, for the Beijing Winter Olympics. Uh, you know, before we let you go, we know that the pandemic, of course, has literally stopped so many sports in their tracks. When we think about how the pandemic affected the art of announcing and sports casting overall, Lee, you know, how has it um, become uh, so resilient? Uh, the, the work that you're doing, that you're able to continue to do this work despite you know, all the challenges. A really good question, and that's an interesting topic because in 2020, when we were, you know, in the in the early months of the pandemic, um, motorsport was one of the first to come back through the virtual world um, as a training method. Uh, race car drivers use simulators, and simulators were once these highly well, they're still expensive, but large simulators were very expensive pieces of equipment and technology where you would have to go to a facility that was a specific simulated facility. Now, you know, you at home or me here at home, if you've got a, you know, a computer with good bandwidth and you've got a monitor and you can have a steering wheel and a, a foot box, you can, you can simulate driving on pretty much any, any racetrack in the world. And drivers use it at, at their own homes as a legitimate and genuine uh, training um, a f- facility, you know, at home and a, a training means. And so the world leader in that is a... Um, a Boston, Massachusetts-based company called iRacing. And um, in, in 2020, we broadcast with the IndyCar series that NBC Sports has, of course, the Indy 500. Um, all of the regular IndyCar drivers participated in a six-weekend series virtually, and we broadcast it on NBC Sports. And I was sitting in my at my dining room table. My co-commentator Townsend Bell was at his, in his office in in Pacific Palisades in Los Angeles, and our and our other analyst Paul Tracer was sitting in his kitchen in Scottsdale, Arizona. And we put out six weekends of broadcasting that was a virtual race. This race wasn't happening in the real world, and um, so I think the pandemic has taught us ways to do things 
very differently and uh, accommodate on the fly. I was commentating off my MacBook Pro. I had one of my son's iPads as the as the scoring, <laughs> timing and scoring monitor, and I was commentating off my eldest with my eldest son's gaming headphones and and microphone. <laughs> so it, it taught us a lot to be uh, it taught us a lot to be creative, uh, deal with the resources we've got, and um, let's make the best of it. And um, you know the challenges that are around Beijing. Um, we, you know, certainly NBC Sports is the biggest Olympic broadcaster in the world. We're not alone. You know, I know that Eurosport uh, uh, have have kind of done the same thing as we're doing. And, you know, people have made the best with the circumstances that we're dealt with and try and still broadcast to our to our viewing public uh, in the best possible way, but in a safe environment. Um, you know, obviously with Omicron and the challenges that the pandemic keeps throwing at us, um, you know, the, the, the powers that be are very creative. Our engineering staff are amazing. And to, to make the games happen the way they have, I think, is a huge testament to, to their resilience, their creativity and their determination to not deny the viewing public something that people really love. I mentioned that the Olympic Games, of course, wrapping up uh, this weekend. Lee, before you go, what's the competition our listeners uh, shouldn't miss? Well, I'm incredibly biased that way, Lucy, because uh, we've still got some we've, we've still got some sliding events to come. And and here's I'll give you the one big uh, the one big ticket item this weekend. Uh, so on Friday and Saturday, actually not Saturday and Sunday. So on Friday and Saturday, uh, the women's uh, two women bobsled and the men's four man bobsled. And in so in the two women, you'll see Kaylee Humphreys and Alana Myers Taylor again. So the gold and silver medalists from Mono Bob. So that's well worth watching. But in the four-man, you're going to see, and I've put, I'm, I, I would put money on it that you've watched Cool Runnings, as we all have, the legendary <laughs> bobsled movie with John Candy and the Jamaican bobsled. For the first time in 24 years, Jamaica will have a men's four-man bobsled team. And wow. the Yanqing Sliding Center, or as I like to call it, the House of Speed, will be going crazy when they see that Jamaican four-man bobsled back on track in almost a quarter of a century. Lee Diffie, it's been a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you so much for telling us a little bit about behind the scenes and the work that you and your team are doing. We appreciate it. No worries, Lucy. Thanks for having me on the show. And hello to everybody in Connecticut. I love living here. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, Lee Diffie, NBC sports broadcaster and play-by-play commentator for the Beijing Winter Olympics. Coming up after the break, from hockey to snowboarding to mogul skiing, Connecticut natives are representing and winning. Connecticut Public's Frankie Graziano joins us after the break with some of their stories, and we want to hear from you too. 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. 
ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Have you been watching the Winter Olympics? We want to hear from you. Who's your favorite Olympian? What's the, the competition that you've been following over the last two weeks? 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Now, there are plenty of athletes with Connecticut ties to cheer on. Producer Katie Pellico is Nathan Chen's number one fan. And no wonder the 22-year-old Yale student and U.S. figure skater has quite a following. This year, he earned his first gold medal. There's also Sabrina Cass, a mogul skier and first-time Olympian from Cheshire, Connecticut. She's the first mogul skier representing Brazil. And representing Team USA Reading's Olivia Giaccio and Summer's Hannah Soar are mogul skiers who made their Olympic debut as well. And Giaccio finished sixth after making it to the last round of finals. Here to discuss some of these significant competitions and races, including these athletes with Connecticut ties, I want to welcome back to the show Frankie Graziano, who's a reporter for Connecticut Public. Frankie, welcome back. Lucy, how are you today? I think this is the first time you and I are talking sports on the show. You are the newsroom expert. So let's start off with uh, the, the story. Uh, this is uh, Suffield raised luge racer, Emily Sweeney. Um, I also live in Suffield, but we're not starting on this because of that. But the fact that she had quite a comeback story after the 2018 Winter Olympics. Tell us about it, Frankie. She really did. And uh, in Pyeongchang four years ago, she crashed out and it was a horrific crash. Uh, she hit this turn and then it was a, it was a horrible crash. I think it took her two months or something like that to walk. As she mentioned to ESPN, uh, NPR's Brian Mann was out there following her and got to talk to her as well. And, and two reporters, um, she got to talk after her return. Uh, she finished the competition in the women's luge with her best run of the event. But, uh, before that she had crashed out again, um, almost a 10th of a second faster, um, than her opening run, but uh, just not enough to, to overcome a crash that she had um, on Monday about a week and a half ago. And she told reporters after that that it was uh, just a tough one for her and it was hard to think about the next steps. But nonetheless, just an incredible uh, return for her. She broke her neck and back, Lucy. Mm. Yeah. It's a horrific crash to hear that she's made this comeback is something. Yeah, she should be incredibly proud about it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see if she returns back to the Olympics. It was her second uh, Olympic Games. And somebody we follow, as you mentioned, she's from Suffield. I've seen a, a few other states claim her as well. I think upstate New York claims Emily Sweeney as well. But uh, we'll hang on to her as well. It's like Lindsay Jacob Ellis, uh, the, <laughs> the great snowboarder. Uh, I, I think she's been claimed by Vermont at this point and a couple other states. But uh, she was born in Danbury and raised in Roxbury. So uh, we'll, try to, we'll try to claim her, Lucy. 
There you go. Well, she, I know uh, Emily Sweeney went to Suffield High School, and you're right. I believe she now lives in Lake Placid, uh, and I believe her parents also moved out there to help her after that crash in 2018. But yes, we're going to claim her still. Uh, before we get to yeah, Lindsay Jacob Bellis from Roxbury, I got to ask you about this ice dancer, Zach Donahue, um, significant, um, raised in Madison. He took his final bow this week. Tell us about that. Yeah, but you know how it is. It's always one of those stories where everything's like a love story and, and everybody's interested in that aspect. They went on the Today Show after their final dance. And of course, everybody was asking about a relationship that he used to have uh, with his partner. But it's more about their competition on the ice. And that's why people should follow Zach and his partner, Madison Hubble. They scored a 130.89 uh, and they finished third in the free dance. That got them a medal. Zach actually got two medals in the, these games. Uh, but it was more important because that dance was their last dance, the final time in an 11-year partnership. Uh, they hugged and saluted the crowd afterwards. It was really cool. Um, just a few years ago in Pyeongchang, they finished five points off the podium, a really small margin. And this time around, they got to win it. I reached out to the Madison Chamber of Commerce afterwards because I'm so interested in whether or not we get to see Zach Donahue in uh, Connecticut after something like that. Uh, unfortunately, he lives in Montreal now, so uh, I don't know if that's going to be something that's happening. They said they don't have any plans to honor <laughs> Zach. Well, maybe some of his family members are listening and can make it happen, Frankie. So let's talk about Lindsay Jacobellis, uh, Jacobellis from Roxbury. As you mentioned, uh, the most decorated snowboarding athlete. Uh, what happened uh, in this competition? Yeah, I mean, no Olympic golds in five uh, five Olympics uh, going back to the Torino Games in 2006. Uh, and Lindsay has become kind of like, this is what's tough about sports. And we'll get into the mental health aspect. But you wait like four years uh, for something like this. And Lindsay becomes known for coming just so close and then falling. There was a, a famous one that she had in Vancouver and then one in Torino. So she's really been known for that. But I just want to get into her discipline. She's really skilled at uh, racing on a snowboard. That's kind of like motocross on a motorcycle and dirt. So she does snowboard cross on snow. And her first event this year, she won gold in women's snowboard cross. And that was really cool because if you follow the Olympic games and you follow snowboarding and you follow Lindsay, and like I said, we claim her here in Connecticut, you really got excited for that because she hadn't won a gold. Um, and, and obviously somebody we know locally, uh, Gabby Lucivero is related to her. She works at uh, NBC Connecticut. She got to hug her cousin, uh, afterwards. So that was a cool moment. But if you were watching on TV and you were watching like a live event and you were getting into the Olympics last weekend, there was, uh, I think it was for the first time mixed team snowboarding. And this is basically snowboard cross, but the man goes first. And then the women, uh, the women went second, uh, and so you got to see her partner, this uh, 40-year-old guy from Michigan, uh, Nick Baumgartner. Um, he went first. He's never got an Olympic medal. And he was able to, to, to hold off and, and get in his heat. So then the pressure's on Lindsay to deliver. Lindsay goes second. And all the commentary is about how old they are. They're 36 and 40. It's not like they're dinosaurs or anything like that. But they're treating like them like that in the Olympics, calling them 80s babies. So it sounds like they can't win. Uh, Lindsay comes down and just absolutely dominates uh, the, the second end of the race and uh, gets uh, a, a second gold medal, two gold medals in three days for Lindsay after she didn't have one. That was really cool. And of course, Baumgartner got his first too. So that was pretty cool. 
Hey, speaking of uh, the gold medals, uh, her cousin is uh, NBC Connecticut sports reporter uh, Gabrielle Lucevero, who's covering uh, the Olympics uh, over in Beijing. She celebrated uh, her cousin's win from the sidelines. We have a little bit of this clip. Let's take a listen. Amazing moment, Frankie, for her to see her cousin get the gold. Oh this is unique because because of COVID, you know, we're, they're not seeing the same amount of spectators, even family or guests allowed to attend. Yeah, and you know, it's just a, it's just tremendous because I, I just want to say that you played that clip with Gabby, and she's been crushing this competition and covering it. You heard about Alana Myers Taylor and her bringing her family over. She had to be with Nico. You heard that from Lee Diffie. So a different Olympics. It puts that much pressure on the situation. And Gabby has just broken a story over there in, in Beijing that a lot of people are paying attention to now with actually, incidentally, a, a Westport native, Julia Marino. And, and, and Gabby had that story. A lot of people were watching early on in the Olympics. Marino, who's from Westport and went to uh, the St. Joseph uh, High School in Trumbull, which is a very prestigious local school here. She uh, has a, a Prada logo on her board and everybody got to see that because it caught a lot of attention because it's this, this beautiful like red banner with the iconic white uh, Prada logo etched into it. And they got to see that the first time around when she won the first uh, medal of the Olympics for Team USA, actually, a silver in women's slope style the opening weekend. Gabby said that when she won that event, she had to put tape over the Prada logo she had on her helmet. And I guess, and this gets into, this is where we start to get into the mental health thing. The IOC didn't like that, the International Olympic Committee, because, you know, I don't think Prada is one of their sponsors. So they wanted her to cover the logo on her board after that event. And it sounds like from what she posted on Instagram that she had to cross out the logo essentially with the Sharpie. And the board felt different for her. And maybe it's heavier. It sounds like it could have been. And the feel is important when you only get a short time to perform. So it sounds like that uh, played with her a little bit. Anyway, she told Gabby Lucivero, who's the uh, Connecticut reporter from NBC, that the controversy made her withdraw from the games. And it's a true shame because Julie is such a bright light, such a positive energy if you've seen her news conferences. And uh, she did win a silver in her second Olympics. And uh, she did get to compete uh, four years ago in Pyeongchang. So hopefully she gets back into one of these games in uh, 2026. Uh, another uh, Connecticut athlete uh, with ties to Connecticut. You spoke with Fairfield speed skater Kristen Santos right before she left for Beijing. She's had quite a year. Uh, tell us about that. And you mentioned uh, mental health earlier, and I wanted you to, to focus on that when you when you talk about uh, Santos's story. Yeah, let me start off with that. I mean, you got to remember, and this is when we talk about COVID nineteen and the impact too with with mental health. Right, uh, the Olympics in uh, Tokyo seemed like they were a million years ago. Actually, the 2020 Olympic Games from Tokyo were held in 2021, only six or seven months ago because of the pandemic. And that's where we had American gymnast Simone Biles. She brought uh, mental health to the forefront of the uh, athletics, really, when she withdrew from the team gymnastic finals at the Summer Olympic Games. And we know how these games are close together, so a lot of these athletes are getting asked about their mental health. I asked uh, Kristen Santos, who's from Fairfield, back in December, right before she left for Beijing, 
about her mental health and when that really comes into play when she competes. She says that Biles inspired her to focus on her mental health ahead of her races. She said that she gets really nervous. She can doubt herself. She can put other people on this high pedestal and then basically put herself on a lower one. And it, she said it can be really draining. So she uh, pointed to a previous Olympic trials experience where she overcame an injury that was supposed to keep her off the ice. And that really boosted her confidence. And I think that did well for her this time around, particularly in qualifying for the games. Uh, before we let you go, uh, Frankie, when we talk about uh, uh, athletes with Connecticut ties, it, it was quite a year for uh, hockey when you think about how COVID kept the NHL from competing, uh, making for many a miracle on ice comparison, that reference going back to the 80s, I believe, Olympic Games when yeah. the U.S. hockey team was made <laughs> up largely of young amateurs. Uh, so who ended up playing for Team USA uh, men's hockey this year? There's a Connecticut local. Can you briefly talk about him? Yeah, Strauss Mann uh, from Greenwich. He, uh, he, he actually split time in net with uh, Drew Camesso. Strauss is from Greenwich. And he, plays for the, uh, he plays goalie for the U.S. men's hockey team. He did play in the deciding game and did well. He had 34 saves. And he ended up playing more minutes than Camesso. And he had pretty good stats, uh, uh, sub two goals against average, which is really good. But unfortunately, they got knocked out of the competition in a shootout loss to Slovakia. He did well, as I mentioned, but it's just that Team USA didn't put any pucks in the back of the net in the shootout. They went 0 for 5 uh, in shooting in the shootouts, which is really bad. Uh, Mann plays in the Swedish Hockey League. He's part of the U.S. Olympic team of young players, as you mentioned, that are filling in for the NHLers. And a lot of attention on the games. Maybe the future is bright for Mann. We'll see. Frankie Graziano, you've been uh, great with giving us some of that context on, on the stories behind these amazing Olympians. Uh, Frankie doing great work for our station, Connecticut Public. Is there anything you don't cover, Frankie? Hey, you got to pay attention. You can't sleep. Something will break <laughs> on you, you know, like we had the Sandy Hook uh, lawsuit uh, mm -hmm. wrap up the other day. And of course, there's sports betting that I've been paying attention to the last couple of years. You got to stay on your toes, Lucy. I know how you do it every day. You're covering all these different disciplines. <laughs> I've you do a better great, job at it than I do. I've got a great team. Frankie, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Lucy. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, the Winter Games may soon be over, but before they had even begun, back in December, the U.S. had declared a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics because of China's human rights abuses. How did the ongoing tensions impact the Games? We talk about that with NPR's Beijing correspondent Emily Fang right after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We've been talking about the Winter Olympics, which will wrap up this coming Sunday. But we wanted to also talk about the geopolitical context surrounding the Games, considering the tensions between the U.S. and China. Joining us now on Zoom is Emily Fang, NPR's Beijing correspondent. Emily, it's late where you are. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And I'm happy to be on because I'm a proud, born and bred Connecticut citizen. Nice. Well, 
<laughs> Good to hear it. We'll have to have you uh, come back then, Emily. Uh, but let's start with, I had mentioned this diplomatic boycott back in December. Um, back then, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki citing ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity in Xinjiang and other human rights abuses. You were one of the first journalists to cover the internment of Uyghur people in Xinjiang. So talk about this in the larger context of this boycott. Um, and, and what did the boycott mean, um, if at all, on the games? The boycotts have made these games super interesting because they're taking place amid all these geopolitical tensions. And so as much as the games are about sports, this year they're about politics. There's been a lot of debate about whether a diplomatic boycott actually achieves the political goals that the U.S. and its allies have laid out, namely to name and shame the fact that China has ongoing human rights abuses within its borders. But so far, what we've seen from this Olympics and also previous Olympics is hosting these games as an invitation for the international media and other spectators to pay attention to these issues. Normally, actually, countries that host the Olympics see a dip in public opinion globally um, after they host the Olympics because it just invites scrutiny over the country's political issues, about how it's hosted the games. And um, you've seen that discussion permeating all coverage, at least globally, um, about the Winter Olympic Games this year. Now, the Olympics are supposed to be apolitical, but journalists have been bringing up some of these questions to, to press conferences, even uh, today in Beijing. What happened at the latest IOC presser, Emily? Today was a really interesting IOC presser. These happen every single day. They're usually not very exciting, but today a couple of journalists asked about Taiwan, whether its delegation was going to show up during the closing ceremony this Sunday. Other people asked about Xinjiang, this region where China has been detaining hundreds of thousands of ethnically Uyghur uh, Chinese citizens. And they were wondering whether the uniforms used in the Olympics had been sourced from this region where there had been accusations of forced labor. And the IOC had a prepared statement, but it was the Beijing Olympic Committee official uh, a woman named Yan Xiaorong, who's their spokesperson, who took a moment to put out China's political stance. She said Taiwan is part of China, and she called the human rights allegations about Xinjiang, quote, lies. Now, these are political stances, and yet the Olympics are supposed to be apolitical. There are very strict guidelines in the IOC regulations that say while you're on Olympic premises, you're not supposed to make public actions or political actions, excuse me, there are exceptions made for press conferences like these, but it was this really astonishing moment where you heard these lines that I've heard so many times repeated before at state propaganda conferences being said on an IOC stage. And it was a reminder once again that sports and politics do mix and they mix frequently and that politics have been forefront at these winter games. You've also covered how the Olympics are being received in China. So can you talk more about that, including when we see athletes uh, with, uh, you know, a Chinese background uh, competing, but not for China? Right. The, the ramp up to the Winter Games was a little bit strange in that there actually was not that much publicity in Beijing, the host city. If you walked around the city, you didn't see any signage in part because all of the Olympic activities are taking place inside these closed loops, these, these conceptual bubbles, basically, where you don't get to interact with any of the games for COVID prevention reasons. And also China was just so much more low key about these games during the summer games, which they hosted in 2008. It was this big celebratory coming out ceremony for the country. This time, China kind of uh, 
hung its head low and it was just trying to get through and host the game smoothly in the midst of a global pandemic. So there wasn't a lot of public excitement about the games. Now that we're almost done with the games, however, I've noticed that more people are, are watching the games. There's been a lot of public excitement about one of the Olympic mascots, this chubby panda figure that's covered in a snow parka. It's called Bing Dwin Dwin and it's totally sold out all across China. Now, part of the hype is manufactured, but a lot of it is genuine and people have been sleeping outside, camping out to line up for these mascots. So there's been gradually more buy-in and overall the games have happened smoothly. There was a lot of concern at the beginning that there would be rampant COVID infections within Olympic venues. So far infections have remained relatively low because of such strict social distancing and quarantine rules. And there has not been the embarrassing political moment where say an athlete comes out with a scathing criticism of China after winning a medal. Um, instead, a lot of the coverage has been about these foreign-born athletes, for example, that are competing for China and what that means um, in terms of, of who they represent and how. Human rights activists or advocates have warned uh, athletes, right, to be refrained from any political speech. Can you talk about that, Emily? Right. So China, this is, China's been very, very nervous about athletes using their platform during the Olympics to make political statements critical of China. And so it tries to head these off. The week before the Olympics, officials came out in China and said, if you make any um, action that somehow contravenes the Olympic spirit, then you will be met with uh, punishment. And they didn't outline what that punishment was. Human rights activists have actually warned athletes not to say anything critical about China while they're competing for the Olympics in China because there's no guarantee that they can be kept safe while they're in the, in the country. But what you have seen are athletes putting out political statements before and after they're competing in the Olympics. A few have already gone home and they've made critical statements to, uh, to their local newspapers in their home countries. Again, you're hearing Emily Fang here on Where We Live. She's NPR's Beijing correspondent as we hear about the geopolitical context as uh, the games are uh, closing uh, this weekend. You've also done coverage on nearly three dozen athletes competing for Team China who are actually not Chinese citizens. Can you tell us more about that? So it's not clear whether or not they're Chinese citizens. I mean, that's the question at the heart of the matter. And um, it's confusing because China has really strict citizenship rules. It does not allow dual passports. So if you're U.S. born and you've got a U.S. passport, but you want to compete for Team China, well, according to China's rules, you've technically got to give up that U.S. passport and take on a Chinese one. And China does not have a history of giving out passports to people who are not ethnically Chinese and born in China. So the question is, how are these athletes who are born in Canada and the US, how are they competing on the Chinese national team? These athletes have strategically kept mum about this. They have not disclosed whether they've given up their other passports to take a Chinese one, um, but it's really brought into question um, you know, what it means to compete for a country. It's been a convenient way to talk about this geopolitical rivalry between the US and China as well. One of the most prominent US-born athletes competing for Team China is the freestyle skier Eileen Gu. She is a superstar in China. Like She is on every billboard. She's on these commercials. People love her. They gush about her in social media. And yet in the U.S., she's seen as having turned her back on the U.S. She's taken all the skiing expertise that she, she gained in the U.S. and gone to compete for China. Um, so it's been this really interesting foil, I think, for a lot of the frustrations and tensions in the U.S.-China relationship, but manifested in this conversation about uh, this teenage girl, Eileen Gu.
Mm. I'm glad you brought that up because social media sites in both China and the U.S. have been hotbeds for hateful comments about uh, some of these athletes, also including figure skater Zhu Yi, Emily. That has been really interesting. So you mentioned Zhu Yi. Her, she's, she's a U.S. citizen, U.S. born, uh, named Beverly Zhu. But a few years ago, she decided to start skiing or skating for Team China, and she changed her name to Zhu Yi. She's in many ways in the same boat as Eileen Gu, but she has not been met with the same love and ardor that Chinese fans have for Eileen. And one of the reasons is Zhu Yi doesn't speak Chinese as well as Eileen Gu. She has really faulty Mandarin because she's an American. She was born and raised in the U.S. And also during her first competition this Olympics, she fell. And so netizens start piling onto her, accusing her of taking the spot of a real Chinese person who had been born and raised in China. And all this shows the limitations, I think, of the limits to acceptance of foreign-born athletes, but also just foreign-born people, full period, uh, full stop here in China. It doesn't have a long history of immigration. And so unlike other countries that use uh, liberally use foreign-born athletes to boost their rosters and um, encounter foreign-born people all the time, that's still slow to catch on in China. Mm. Given all the context that you've given us, uh, Emily, you know, at the top of the, the seg, I mentioned uh, uh, the diplomatic boycott. Uh, ultimately, was this just lip service? I don't think so. I think that it was a pretty effective way to raise attention to some serious political issues between China and the rest of the world. As I said at the beginning, hosting the Olympics is always an invitation for more global scrutiny into the country that's hosting the Olympics. I think we've seen the news cycle dominated, yes, by sports coverage, but also a lot of hard questions being asked about China's human rights abuses in Tibet and Xinjiang, about its economic model that's predominantly state-led state, state -led and state-run. And people who normally might not be interested in news about China are tuning in because the Olympics are going on there, and at the same time, they can hear about other issues revolving around the Games. Emily, it's been a pleasure uh, to hear from you uh, as uh, the Winter Games uh, round up. Has it been exciting as well to cover this? I know you've been a longtime reporter reporting on China, but in the context of the Olympics. It's been a bit of a weird games to cover. I was really excited, but unfortunately, I haven't been able to go into any of the Olympic venues and report from premises because they're in these, these bubbles. They're completely walled off from the general public. And I considered going in and watching, but in order to come back to my apartment and rejoin the rest of China outside of the Olympics, I would have to quarantine for three weeks. And mm -hmm. so that was just too much of an amount of time to take away from my normal coverage to make it worth it, unfortunately, to cover the Olympics. But that's been the story for the entire games because of the pandemic. Right. Emily Fang, thank you so much for talking with us and glad to hear that you also have a Connecticut connection. Emily Fang, the NPR Beijing correspondent. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Katie Pellico produced today's show. Special thanks to Jean Amatruda. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.